Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode gets creepy as we examine some of the monsters of 2017 with forensic precision. First up is Beauty and the Beast. Director, Bill Condon. Script, Stephen Chbosky and Evan Spilotopoulos. Director of Photography, Tobias A. Schleisler. Music, Alan Menken. Actors, Emma Watson, Dan Stevens, Luke Evans, Kevin Klein, Ian McCallan, Ewan McGregor, and Emma Thompson. One has to ask the question, why remake a film using the original as a storyboard? Disney live-action films of late have been remakes of original animated classics given a shift of perspective. This shift at least justifies a remake. There is no justification here. Instead, there is some additional material, more backstory for the Beast and Belle, which gives them a similar childhood experience to share. And the witch who set the curse takes an active part in the finale, which implies she has been guiding events, which has the implication that the Beast has no active role in his own redemption. Controversy has been concreted around two gay characters. They are as offensive as when the gay actors in the carry-on films try to play straight characters. In Beauty and the Beast, they are a straight writer's conception of gay when the writer has never met a gay person before. This is not Disney embracing homosexuality. It's only a small, pathetically tentative step in that general direction, sort of. I also note that the world has failed to end because the Disney Corporation acknowledged that gay people actually exist. The backlash against Disney was just part of a general movement against realigning politics and society in the USA so that they become more in line with reality. Despite what I said about the Beast earlier, the additional material does not set him out as a character not beyond redemption. The distortion of his better instincts are laid at the feet of his father, who is even less than a shadowy figure in the narrative. We need to have a scene which shows how the father distorted the character of his son. This capacity for redemption is best displayed in the library scene, where we learn both Belle and the Beast of voracious readers. This is perhaps a misstep. It shows the Beast has finer instincts while perverting the dichotomy of the narrative. The Beast couldn't be more obviously a symbol of male power unless he was constantly shown with a rampant penis. Bell is supposed to be a civilizing symbol that directs that power into productive rather than selfish usages. As a general impression, Belle, in the live-action version, is more the traditional Disney princess. Some of her behaviours are just as based on the perceived privileges of power as those of Gaston, and just as selfish. As a heroine, she seems more flawed than an example of female empowerment. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention while watching the film, but there were times that I thought the Beast would be better off without Belle. 
Gaston and Belle make a cute couple. Admittedly, he's a jerk. But so is Belle. She has a sense of entitlement that, in turn, gives her a sense of superiority that is nauseating to behold. The irony is that, from wanting to escape from the constraints of provincial existence, she becomes a provincial lord's wife, a fate less than the death she deserves. Gaston is problematic. He is the product of a war that the beast should have gone to. The beast would have been his commanding officer. While the beast was being a douchebag, Gaston was fighting a war of the sexes, finding war widows and porking away. History had plenty of other creeps to compete with. On. January the 21st. Millions of people protested the inauguration of serial bankrupt and rapist Donald Trump as President of the United States. It was the largest single-day protest in U.S. history. History was later to prove how justified this protest was against the genocidally incompetent incumbent. May the 21st. Computers worldwide were hit by the WannaCry ransomware cyber attack. I blame the Cybermen. June the 27th, the Petya cyber attacks targeting Ukrainian organizations began. I wonder where all these attacks were coming from. August the 25th. An ethnic cleansing operation began in Myanmar. As this involved rotting human corpses, I don't believe this was a very hygienic cleansing. It seems every generation gets its version of King Kong. This generation has managed two, Peter Jackson's version and... Kong, Skull Island. Director, Robert Voigt Roberts. Script, Dan Gilroy, Max Borenstein, and Derek Connolly. Director of Photography, Larry Fong. Editor, Richard Pearson. And music, Henry Jackman. Actors, Tom Hiddleston, Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, John C. Riley, John Goodman, and Thomas Mann. Once the film gets into its Apocalypse Now trip down the river groove, this isn't a bad film. Unfortunately, to get to that point, you're forced to swallow so much ape shit you're gagging by the time you get there. The setup is a scientific expedition, led by a cryptozoologist and a hollow earther, to check out a previously unknown and unsurveyed island. The military presence outweighs the scientific by about 20 to 1. Now, admittedly, one of these scientists has a theory about what they might possibly encounter. However, I don't believe any military commander would commit this amount of personnel to such a simple exercise without asking the questions, who do scientists who are doing a geologic survey and collecting samples need this level of protection from. The half-assed explanation is that the commander doesn't care. 
He doesn't want to come down from the testosterone high of the Vietnam War, so he never questions the overkill. Second, there are too many helicopters. In one shot, we see four helicopters on the deck of the ship that is taking the cast to Skull Island. That is about all the ship could carry stowed away below decks. When we get into the air, there are six to ten, I lost count, plus some kept in reserve. Where do these extra helicopters come from? Third, Skull Island is permanently surrounded by an anticyclone. The captain of the ship refuses to sail through it, at which point the movie should end. Instead, the military decide to fly through the storm. At this point, the bullshit level has reached the point when I'm ready to walk, and Kong hasn't even appeared yet. This is just so obviously the point where the director has a CGI sequence in mind and no one on script writing duty can be bothered to find a motivation to get to that point. How about the captain refuses to sail the storm while the Russians are trying to push their ship through? Only half believable, I know, and yet better than what we get, which is blind faith in the superiority of American technology. I'm assuming the ship wasn't built in the U.S. This theme of the superiority of American technology over the forces of nature is the direct opposite to the theme of the film. If the sequence we used to show the commander has been so zoned out by the war that he no longer cares about what happens to his men, then that could have led to a dramatic payoff later in the film. Alas, this didn't happen. Fourth, the plan is to lead an exploratory group at one end of the island and pick them up at the other end a week later. A walk of about 150 miles if no science is done along the way. They have no supplies, even before the action starts. Fifth, the hollow earth theory is a load of crap. I like the idea of exploring the geology of the land using explosives. Using the hollow earth theory as a plot point is just bad storytelling. On Skull Island, the evil monsters live underground, while Kong protects humanity, a noble savage, whenever these creatures arise. Kong ceases to be an animal and becomes a slave, or a plot device designed to show how nature has been created to protect humans. Oh yes, us humans are so special that the same force that is trying to destroy us with its creations is also trying to preserve us with other creations. No one notices how schizophrenic this argument is. Sixth, the first human response to Kong is to fight it. Yeah, bring down a creature as big as a skyscraper using weapons designed to kill on a human scale. Once again, the director has a sequence in mind and to hell with its logic. He also has a game plan to get all the main characters trapped on the ground. Just having the helicopters drop them off and then fly back to the ship doesn't suit him. In a real situation like this, the military would not fight. They would retreat, regroup and re-strategize. 
they've just encountered an unexpected and hostile native species. If it can take out one helicopter, it can take them all out. This would lead to a discussion as to whether it was safe to leave the exploratory group alone on the island. Having got the film to the point the director wants through idiocy, the film settles down. There are now two surviving groups. The military group, led by Samuel L. Jackson in full-on Ahab mode, he wants to punish Kong for all the bad decisions he has made. In order to achieve this punishment, he keeps on keeping on with the bad decisions that get people killed. Can't complain about this, because once we're on the ground, it's a kill-by-numbers knockoff film. Characters get knocked off with boring regularity, and they don't even have to go to a knock shop to get offed. The skill of director Robert Boyd Roberts is that, apart from the original massacre, we actually care what happens to the characters. This brings us to the narrative racism. In the prologue, set in World War II, an American and Japanese pilot crash on Skull Island. When we catch up with them, the Japanese pilot has died, and the American wants to return home. This is a waste of narrative material. The Japanese pilot would be a narratively stronger element to counter against the foe Ahab, and culture clashes would add to the conflict. Good drama potential is wasted in order to pursue the comforting illusion to white Americans that the white man can survive adversity and the yellow peril crumbles. Deaths were the butter on the cornhole of life. On January the 2nd, Alan Sergal, the U.S. scriptwriter, born 1916. January the 7th, Betty Lasky, the U.S. film historian, born 1922. January the 12th, William Peter Blatty, the U.S. author and scriptwriter, born 1928. January the 25th, Kevin Gear, the U.S. actor, born 1952. January the 26th, Mike Connors, the U.S. actor, born 1925. January the 31st, Frank Pellegrino, the U.S. actor, born 1944. David Shepard, the U.S. film preservationist, who was born 1940, died on the same day. February the 4th, John Gay, the U.S. scriptwriter, born 1924. February the 7th, Richard Hatch, the U.S. actor, born 1945. February the 13th, Gerald Hirschfeld, the U.S. director of photography, born 1921. April the 18th, Richard Schickel, the U.S. film critic, born 1933. February the 25th, Scott Liu, the U.S. scriptwriter, born 1968. February the 26th, Stephen Lodge, the U.S. scriptwriter, born 1943. Racism is at the core of my next film. Logan. Director, James Mangold. Script, Scott Frank, 
James Mangold and Michael Green. Director of Photography, John Matheson. Editor, Michael McCusker and Dirk Westervelt. Music, Marco Beltrami. Actors, Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, Daphne Keane, Stephen Merchant, Richard E. Grant, and Boyd Holbrook. And a special shout-out to Parker Lovine as Lizard Boy, just because I can. After watching this movie, my first response was, Thank God, the end of the superhero film. It's not that I dislike superheroes in comics. The live-action films just emphasize how stupid the concept is. In the near future, mutants have ceased being born, except for the rest of humanity who are mutants without superpowers. The script is very coy on the subject, I suspect because if the reality that species are mutable is introduced, the villain of this film comes across as a wally. Even if I concede this film universe is one where species are immutable, then this villain is still a wally. He has a scheme involving so many levels of criminality, I'm hard-pressed to know where to begin. At its core is the concept of slavery, that someone can own someone else, and, as property, that owned person has no rights. The only mutants still known to exist are Logan, codenamed Wolverine, Professor Javier, and Caliban. Logan is losing his regenerative power. Professor X is losing his marbles, and Caliban is allergic to light. They take on the job of protecting Laura, Logan's daughter from a, hopefully illegal, genetics experiment. Once again, the mainstream American media show a slick, not to mention sick, fascination with slavery. It's as if the masters of the U.S. want to reintroduce the institution of slavery under another name, as if they believe society can't function without iniquitous inequality. The experiment of manufacturing compliant mutants, of which Laura was a part, hasn't worked so the organization responsible is in the process of terminating the project, and anyone who gets in their way. Law enforcement and politicians appear useless commodities in the U.S. of the future. What this film introduces is a level of violence the equivalent of that found in its master, the comic. Unfortunately, the film is masturbating. It introduces the concept that violence wraps character in a bad way and then celebrates gratuitous, unmotivated violence. From the gang shooting of Logan to the really dumb assault on the farmhouse that pointlessly involves the risk of the kind of collateral damage that will make it impossible to hide what is really going on. The major narrative drive is a conspiracy so Dumb, I'm surprised the conspirators even remember to breathe. The kinetic action and visceral violence are meant to distract from how single-ply toilet tissue thin this plot is. The only thing it achieves is a reflection on its own paranoia. I'll round off this episode with a brief review of Monster Trucks. Director Chris Wedge, script Derek Connolly, Director of Photography, Don Burgess. Editor, Conrad Buff IV. Music, 
David Sardi. Actors, Lucas Till, Jane Levy, Rob Lowe, Danny Glover, and Frank Wiley. Krish, the monster, is the star of the film. It's also not given enough screen time. The narrative has similarities with the remake of Pete's Dragon 2016, emphasizing, however, the ecological message. The problem is that this is a Nickelodeon film, target audience 10 to 14 year olds, with a 17 to 18 year old hero. In a children's film, things can happen with no consequences for the sake of the imagery. Thus, with a 10 to 14 year old audience, Hero Krish can trash 20 parked cars, sideswipe another one, commit multiple traffic offences, and there are no consequences that we, as an audience, can't live with. When it's a 17-year-old, you've pushed suspension of disbelief too far. Similarly, when the enforcer threatens the sheriff, we expect the sheriff to do his job and arrest the enforcer. Oh, I forgot. Law enforcement is politicized in the US. Justice isn't blind, it's bought. It is guarded by whoever funds the political campaigns. Three monsters are released from underground in a fracking accident. Two are captured by the Terravex Oil Corporation and one escapes. Teenager Trip Coley discovers the creature and learns it feeds on oil. He lets the critter, whom he names Creech, live where the engine should be in the truck he is building from spare parts in a junkyard. The truck acts as a wheelchair for Creech. Terravex Oil, worried at its profit line, decides to poison the oil well to kill all the critters and thus end any of those namby-pamby, leftist-leaning, communist, tree-hugging ecologists from complaining that the drilling is harming a rare life form that needs protection. It's Tripp and Coley to the rescue. An unexpected cult following appears to have developed around this film. Personally, I don't get it. My opinion is closer to that of critics on Rotten Tomatoes who wrote, takes more than monsters and trucks to create a compelling feature film. Next episode is one for the Patreon and Buzzsprout supporters as I begin my salute to the One Piece series of films to honour the Netflix release of the One Piece live-action series. Become a Buzzsprout or Patreon supporter and not only get One Piece but all the action. I like nothing more than to be patronized. The ebook Movie Chronicles 1960 is about to be released at an e-store near you, so save up your pennies to get in on the first edition. The next episode, for listeners, not supporters, will take us to England in 1896. Until then, remember, I'm a Kiwi. I live in your future. You have been warned.